into the theology pit. Theology pit. You're falling in the theology pit. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Theology Pit. This is Theology Out of Pittsburgh, and not to be confused with a bottomless pit, because you know what we say, when you fall into a bottomless pit, you die of dehydration. I'm of course your host, Samson Kovach, and we are continuing in our series on the Bible here, and I believe that we're on number 18 today. And today, we are going to get into the meat and potatoes of understanding the Bible. We're going to be talking hermeneutics. We're going to be talking biblical interpretation. We're going to be talking about, well, the right ways and the wrong ways to interpret the Bible. Now, I know what some people are thinking. Well, what do you mean the wrong way? There's there's no wrong way. It's the word of God. Well, we'll discuss that. We're going to look at the different ways that people through history have interpreted the Bible and the methods that they used are still in existence today and you might even be using some of them even though you've never studied hermeneutics. Sometimes I, I think that they just fall into what would be considered a... Um, a natural default in the way that, you know, we've talked about before in these podcasts, when somebody hands you the word of God and what you think that actually means, you know, if it's the word of God, there are certain presuppositions that come with it, uh, ease of interpretation, understanding, um, just general knowledge that when you read it, however it makes you feel, um, whatever pops into your head, that all of these things are legitimate interpretive methods. And we're going to find that that just might not be so. Whenever you're in a Bible study um, and, and you're looking at a passage, depending on the training of whoever's leading the Bible study, whoever's teaching the Bible study, um, you know, is going to be really the level of your interpretation. And if you have people that they don't have any background in it and they might be just going off a, a study guide or something like that and they don't quite understand what's going on in the study guide or the the point that the author is trying to make from that study guide in using that to study the Bible, it's it, it, it can be problematic, but if you're trained, you start to see where those problems are. And it's kind of hard to tell people, well, you know what, that's not what that means, or possibly that's not what that means. But that's what we're going to be looking at in today's Theology Pit, and we're going to be looking over one of the most beneficial things that I've ever learned when it comes to interpreting the Bible. And I'll repeat it a couple times in these next few podcasts, so stay tuned tune for Harmonutics. All right, get a mouthful of coffee there. So, when we talk about hermeneutics, we have to first discuss what that is, because if you've never heard that word before, it kind of sounds like a weird word, doesn't it? Um, hermeneutics is a Greek word, and it, it's, it's actually two Greek words put together. Um, pneuma means uh, breath or wind or spirit. Okay, it's a understand the connotation in this aspect of the suffix of this word um, is really like uh, relating to the Holy Spirit. The study of the Holy Spirit is called pneumatology. Now, uh, Hermes, 
the the first part of it, Hermes was um, the Greek god of um, uh, literature and eloquence, uh, speech, language. He was the one who. Um, uh, was I, I believe in in the Roman uh, mythology he was called Mercury and in the Greek mythology he was called Hermes uh, closest one to to Zeus who would bring his messages uh, to the people of Earth from Zeus so whenever we're talking about hermeneutics. That's what we're talking. We're putting those two words together, Hermes and Numa. So it's in a Christian understanding, we're talking about something that is being delivered to us directly from God. And the Bible acts as that medium. So when we interpret, we're using hermeneutics in order to draw that out. So, you know, we're not advocating for any um, Greek mythology here, just in case anybody was worried about that in the, in the theology pit. That does not happen. Well, it does not happen much. I mean, you know, we wear Nike tennis shoes and Nike clothes and that sort of thing, but that's, that's completely different. So when you have hermeneutics, whenever you're doing it, and for you know, podcast and for radio and, and listening, I've kind of developed this teaching a little bit different. Um, just because normally when I, when I teach this in classes or I, I teach it live, or if I would show you, I would have a chart in front of me or I would draw the chart, but the triangle works just as well. And it triangles easy to understand as Christians, you know, you have a Trinity, um, God is one God in three persons. And so think of like a, a, a triangle. Okay. And you would have, you know, each point of it would be father, son, Holy spirit, put, put this triangle in front of you in the bottom left-hand corner of this triangle. And you can draw this out if you like, you would have what would be considered the ancient audience, okay? This is where you begin with what's called your exegesis. Exegesis means to draw out from, okay? Eisegesis means to read into. So, what we want to do is we want to draw out from this the text. We want to look at what did it mean to the ancient audience? What did it mean then? Okay, not what does it mean today, not how do I interpret it, not how do I feel, but what did it mean then? What did it mean to the people reading it? Whenever you're reading the book of Genesis, okay, you're reading it and you're thinking, all right, here were people who were in captivity. They were slaves in Egypt for 400 years, okay? They had just gone through the um, the plagues, the uh, walked through the Red Sea, saw the um, you know the uh, Israelite army or the yeah, the Israelite yeah the Egyptian army um, you know drowned, and they're in the land of Canaan, and this is who. Genesis was written to. So you have to think about it like that. Okay, this is my mindset. What do I know and what am I reading? So you're thinking, okay, all I know is the Egyptian gods. I vaguely know Yahweh. I vaguely know my God. And 
you get this this book that Moses writes that's being communicated, it's being uh, transmitted around the around the camps and being taught and being um, you know spoken of. People are are memorizing and that's all they do and that's all they talk about and they're learning this law. And what are they learning from you know Genesis? Uh, is not that, you know, the scientific age of the universe in Genesis 1 and 2, that's not what they're thinking at all. What they're thinking is the Egyptian pharaohs were gods and the Egyptian understanding of the universe and everything around it and what all their gods did. And here comes this deity that we worship, Yahweh, who is destroying all of these. For example, um, Ra, the sun god of Egypt, it, think about the very first verse in Genesis. Um, God said, in the beginning, God said, let there be light. And there was light. Well, where's light come from? It comes from the sun. So, wait a minute. What you're saying is that this god that the Egyptians worship, Yahweh created it. And that's kind of the whole point. That was the point of the, the plagues. Each plague was destroying a different understanding of a different God that they may have worshipped and they may have prayed to, up to and including Pharaoh being seen as a God or son of God, as God in flesh that you would worship and his son would be seen as God also. And his son in the 10th plague died just like the commoner's son. There was no difference. So that's how you have to think about each book that you're reading. You got to get into that mindset of the ancient audience. And this is why commentaries are good to a degree. Um, that... I like usually when I read commentaries, I only read the beginning of the commentary because sometimes there will be like a page or two if you have if you have a good study Bible that will discuss what is going on in whatever book or letter that you're reading. It will give a maybe a political climate. It'll give um, definitely geographical climates. That's why we have all the different maps and stuff. So you can kind of know where it is in relation to other things, what's going on, what's the background, maybe even what's the problem uh, that whoever, like in the New Testament, the letters are addressed to certain churches. Well, each church is having a certain problem. So what is that certain problem that they're having? Uh, what's kind of going on? And you get that nice background. You get this first step, this bottom left-hand part of the triangle. What is going on? So you have that timeless audience. And once you understand that, and then you read through it, the next part of it is the interpretation part of it. You then sit back and you take it to the top of the triangle. And this is where you will compare it to other scriptures that may talk about similar things. And you start to synthesize, okay, what is going on here? And you are then getting this understanding and you're extracting the timeless principle. You're saying, does this have a meaning for all people of all time? Okay. Some things might not. Okay. Because some things, if they're, if they're a cultural thing, 
then you have to understand what that means. Like in, um, in, in the book of Corinthians, where, you know, Paul's saying that, you know, a woman should not um, have her head uncovered. Okay. That was a cultural thing. All right. That was not a, a, that's not, it's not a thing for our culture now. That was a thing for that culture. But what's that timeless principle? What does that mean for today? And a woman having her head covered in that society at that time was a sign of modesty. Okay. Women who didn't have their heads covered, who left their heads uncovered, were considered to be prostitutes. Okay. Or women of loose morals, or there was something that, you know, was not quite. Um, I don't want to say right with them, but um, they obviously didn't know the meaning of the word propriety. Let's put it like that. And so within the social structure, what that would mean for today is if you are a woman and you are especially going to church or just out and about, um, whatever your culture is, dress appropriately and dress modestly for that culture. There's no need to, you know, walk around with kind of everything hanging out, so to speak. You don't need to show off everything. Just whatever is considered modest, not not over the top, covering yourself up completely, but also uh, not, you know, uh, using the freedom that we have in Christ to just kind of go go crazy and expose everything and just say, why not? I'm under grace, you know. So, that's that top of the the triangle here that we have this timeless audience what does that what does this principle mean what you know when we're extracting it what are we saying and then you have the application of it into your life and this is one of the most important ones because if you're going through the first two steps but you're not um, applying it to your life then it's really kind of meaningless okay so Whenever, whenever I studied homiletics in my uh, homiletics course, which is how to more or less how to give sermons, and you know you would talk about uh, how do we then get this to apply? Really, the big question was: so what? Okay, you found out what the original audience think. You got the timeless principle. So what? Well, that's exactly it. You then apply that to your life, and you then internalize that, and that's for the contemporary audience. And so, being able to do this um, this whole system here and that application then goes in the bottom right hand uh, point of your triangle okay so you have your uh, original audience your ancient audience in the bottom left hand and then moving clockwise you're going up into your uh, interpretation where you are comparing scripture with scripture and also scripture with other things we'll get to later but basically you're trying to find out what does it mean for the timeless audience and then we come all the way down to the bottom right hand corner and that is for your contemporary audience audience. Okay. And this type of hermeneutic, this type of biblical interpretation, this is one that I use and I use the majority of the time. I know these other ones that we're going to be talking about because it helps me in understanding where people are coming from uh, throughout history. And maybe when I'm talking to people presently, uh, if they're using a different hermeneutic, I know what that hermeneutic is and I know where they're, you know, where they're getting it from and where that, the idea that they might be expressing. But this particular triangle 
type hermeneutic that I've given you of biblical interpretation is called the uh, historical grammatical literary hermeneutic because it's it starts it's in history. There's a certain um, grammar to it. Remember, you're looking at it, um, you know, whether it's poetry or apocalyptic literature or historical narrative, you know, to understand what you're reading, just like you would do in a newspaper that we've talked about before. Um, the the literary understanding, the historical grammatical literary hermeneutic. Okay, so another thing that you do is you also when after you've extracted it to the what does it mean then with the historical context and with the people and stuff. Really, when you're in the the, the that top part of the triangle, you are. I would think doing some of the most work. Okay. I mean, you know, at, at one time sitting down and doing the most work, I mean, yes, you do have to apply it to your life and that does take a lot of work, but you're not just comparing scripture to scripture. All right. You also want to compare it to tradition, to experience, um, to your emotions, to reason. Okay. And you want to, you know, think through all of this stuff. Because sometimes, like I've I've talked about it before, I've you know been in studies where I've said I don't like that that you know I have a problem with it, and that's that's one of the things that you know I can wrestle with, and that I do wrestle with, and and you know that we should, um you know depending on the tradition that you come from, I did you know we did a, a podcast here in the theology pit in this series where we talked about tradition and you know traditionalism and and those different aspects of it, but the reason why we do that is because. We believe that everyone is made in the image of God, and all Christians have the Holy Spirit indwelling within them. And if this is true, then they're worth listening to, just as you're worth listening to whenever you're in a Bible study. If the Holy Spirit is prompting you in a certain direction when you're in a study, talk about it, work it out. That's why we come together as a body of Christ. So these people that lived 16, 1800 years ago, well, what did they have to say? That's why I spend a lot of time in history, especially, you know, church history. I spend a lot of time, um, you know, trying to understand historical uh, culture, um, you know, the, the backgrounds of different peoples of, of, you know, what's going on and looking at what the early church fathers had to say, because they have a certain view on you know what does it mean and depending on the hermeneutic that they're using this would be the idea that you you know get out of it and this is where you come up with that theological statement okay remember theology just means the study of god so if you want to know for example what did john think about jesus and you would look at just the writings of John, and you would say, this is the Johannine um, understanding of Christ. And you would then, you know, extract that timeless principle, and you would say, he obviously believed that Jesus is God. When you look at the Gospel of John, especially, it has these bookends where it starts with him acknowledging that Jesus is God, and it ends with an acknowledgement that Jesus is God. And everything in the middle is just proving he's giving the evidence that Jesus is, in fact, God. He even starts his um, gospel out in, you know, in the beginning was the word, prompting you to have that 
that image in your head that's taking you back to the book of Genesis in the beginning and and associating those two was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Everything that was created was created. You know, he goes through that. And then, um, you know, you, you, you get this understanding of the word in that Jesus is the word. And then at the end of it with um, Downing Thomas, where he says to him, my Lord and my God, Hang on, I gotta take a slurp here. So, um, you know, so then you, when you apply that to yourself, and you know, and you you bend your knee and say, "Yes, Jesus is God." Um, we just went through that triangle. We looked at, okay, what did John think? What? How do we compare that? What does it mean? And how does that apply? And so that was a very quick way of going through it. But that is what a theological statement is, or rather a theological statement should be. When somebody makes a theological statement, um, you, you can ask them if they're studied, um, you know, what hermeneutic do you use? They should be able to tell you. If they can't tell you, if they're like, I don't know, I just I just read the Bible and interpret it. Okay, well, that actually is an interpretive method. It's called the reader-response method. Um. So let's go through a a brief history of interpretation here, so to speak, and um, we're going to start with um, the ancient Jewish hermeneutics. And the ancient Jewish hermeneutics are interesting. There's a couple of them that we want to go over. Some of these are the hermeneutics that the gospel writers use because this was in their time. Um, so here's a summary that's been written up. That says, um, ancient Jewish hermeneutics is best described as an attempt by those who are passionately committed to the inspiration of Scripture to make God's Word relevant to the current context. In their zeal, they often took an overly literal and legalistic approach in which every detail of Scripture had out-of-context meaning and significance for their current situation. People still do this today. They still say, I would like a word from God. And they just open the Bible and wherever their eyes fall, then they say, okay, that's that's what I should do today. That's what it means. Um, but that if you're taking stuff out of context, then is that really the word of God? I've been on Word FM before uh, here in Pittsburgh, 101.5, talking about this, this topic. That was redundant. Um, but I've said on there that I don't believe that the Bible is the Word of God. I believe that the Bible rightly interpreted is the Word of God and that there's a difference. You can't take passages out of context, throw them at me, and then say, that's the Word of God. You need to obey it. Um, this is a lot of things that uh, people who either have not studied or are not Christians do because they don't understand what the Bible is. They think that it's like that. They think it's like a magic book that you just open it, you take whatever, and then you throw it at the people and say, see, this is what it is. Um, I get a lot of that from unbelievers and, uh, you know, it's difficult to show them, well, no, there's actually a way to interpret, um, getting to that point with them is very difficult because they don't, they honestly don't care. Um, it's the ones that do care, um, will actually study that and, um, their arguments are a lot better put together, but um, the majority of them don't. So, Henry uh, Verkler, 
in his book Harmonutics, written in 1981, says about the um, ancient Jewish um, interpretation, scribes took great care in complying the scriptures, in copying the scriptures, believing every letter of the text to be the inspired word of God. This profound reverence for the excuse me, for the scriptural text had both its advantages and disadvantages. A chief advantage was that the texts were carefully preserved in their transmission across the centuries. A major disadvantage was that the rabbis soon began interpreting scripture by methods other than the way in which communication is normally interpreted. The rabbis presupposed that since God is the author of scripture, number one, the interpreter could expect numerous meanings in a given text, and two, every incidental detail of the text possessed significance. Rabbi Akaba in the first century AD, eventually extended this to maintain that every repetition, figure of speech, parallelism, synonym, word, letter, and even the shapes of the letter had hidden meaning. In the Sanhedrin uh, 34a, it says, Just as a rock is split into many splinters, so also one biblical verse may contain many teachings. And, you know, you can hear this in some churches today uh, in, in the sermons and stuff. They might spend, you know, a month on a verse or something like that, or, you know, two months on a verse and just bringing out like so much. Now, if they're going into history and the background of what's going on, that's different. But if, you know, each week it's the same verse and there's a different interpretation and different application, that's where it can be problematic. So, the first Jewish method that we look at is called midrash. Okay. Think about if you get a rash on your midsection. Best way, the best way I can, best mnemonic device I think I can give you. So, midrash is a form of interpretation that characterized the normal hermeneutical method of the rabbis and Pharisees in general. It sought to contemporize the text of scripture so as to make it relevant for everyday application. Typically, this application came by extensive out-of-context applications of incidental teachings. Okay? So, for uh, some uh, some abusive characteristics of Midrash, um, often gave meaning to text, phrases, and words without regard of the context in which they were meant to apply. Combined texts that contain similar words or phrases, whether or not such texts were referring to the same idea. And it took incidental and obscure aspects of grammar and gave them interpretive uh, significance. So, this is generally done... Today, um, you know, I, I, I've seen this happen in Bible studies that I've been in where we've read a passage of scripture and we're talking about it and somebody would say, I love this passage because this just proves predestination and that's what, you know, predestination this and predestination that and everything. And the, the scripture verse that we're reading really didn't have anything to do with predestination, you know, that concept. And I would say to them, well, no, it, it doesn't. And they would say, well, you don't believe in predestination. I'm like, well, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that there are other scriptures to support predestination and what you're talking about. But by you attributing it to this passage, you're actually stripping this passage of its meaning and its force in order for you to, um, 
you know, interpreted in the way that you have. I think that we should let the author and the scripture, you know, interpret itself. And let's see what it has to say. And then, you know, we, we'll leave it at that. But if you want to talk about predestination, we can go to those verses. All right. So, what I'm saying is you're in the right church, you're just in the wrong pew. Okay. And if you have a Presbyterian background, that phrase probably has a lot more significance uh, than any anything else. Um, or maybe anything else I've said, uh, because Presbyterians don't really change. Um, they're is a as a Presbyterian, there is a certain place that you sit in church every single week. Your family sits there every single week, constantly. Um, since I wasn't raised Presbyterian, and I go to a Presbyterian church now, uh, my wife and I and our family we move around a lot, so we don't sit in the exact same spot every time. Probably drives you know our our fellow parishioners nuts that you know we do that because we we're probably in somebody's seat every single week. But our pastor, a lot of times, if he's giving sermons or he's uh, talking about you know, while he's talking about someone or asking to pray for somebody or giving a story about somebody or something like that, or a family, he'll be able to say, um, the so-and-so family who is, um, in this service and they sit, you know, right back there or so-and-so family, they go to the nine o'clock service in the sanctuary and they sit rather than in the fellowship hall and they, um, sit on the uh, left-hand side of the sanctuary, or you've probably seen them or, you know, this particular person, they go to the 8 a.m. traditional morning service and, you know, they sit right over here. It's like he knows everybody by where they sit, um, which is nice in a way because at a glance, you know, he's seen it every day for years at a glance, he can see if somebody's not there and, you know, what's going on. And if somebody doesn't show up for a couple weeks, you know, he can get concerned. Maybe they're sick. Maybe they, something's going on. They need help. We, and make a note, Hey, we need to reach out to somebody. So, I mean, it does, you know, kind of have its advantages there, but, um, you know, the midrash understanding can be split into, in three different ways. Also, um, literalism, letterism, and pressure. Okay. Now, there's also, and that was mainly the Palestinian Jews that did that. Um, Pesher is something that the Qumran community did. Remember, they had the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Hellenistic Jews, the Greek Jews, used an allegorical approach, okay, to kind of explain some of these, like, you know, things that they would think are just kind of like crazy, like atrocities that we would find uh, disagreeable. But we'll go over that next. Everyone, thanks for listening to the Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. All right, so in our Midrashic understanding here, let's go into literalism. And this is probably one that you're most familiar with. As you, you know, first started reading the Bible, this is probably your very first hermeneutical method that you used. You would read the Bible, and whatever it said, that's what it was. Okay, absolutely 100% literal. If it was using poetic language, you did not care. 
If it said the moon turned to blood, the moon turned to blood. If it says that you know the book of Revelation, there's going to be a giant uh, dragon that's going to come at you. Well, then by gum, there's going to be a giant dragon. Okay, that is literalism. It is defined as the interpretation of the scripture according to the straightforward reading of the text. Among the rabbis, this literalization of the text was awesome, often extreme, bypassing the general theological principles that were being taught and opting for particular legalistic applications. So again, going back to the thing with the woman that covers her head, you know, in in that the church today would say, no, you must cover your head. Okay. And extreme example that probably nobody has ever done, at least not none that I've ever found, is where um I believe it's in in uh, Timothy where Paul asks him to bring him his cloak because he's in jail in Rome. I don't know of anybody that went and tried to find a cloak and then uh, tried to take it to a jail in Rome to find Paul to give it to him, even though it's commanded right there. Bring me a coat. Bring me a cloak while I'm in I'm in prison. Okay, I'm going to do that. That would be literalism. Okay taking it to mean exactly what it says. A lot of people use this in the book of Revelation. Um, and, you know, depending on the degree that they use it to, you know, it can get extremely um, convoluted and it starts getting pretty far out there. And, you know, you, you start to say to them, are you sure you're interpreting that correctly or that's not really what it says is it you know it becomes like one of those things like the um the left behind series is based on a type of literalism um i would say that a lot of dispensationalism is um people who are king james only people um pentecostals southern baptists uh baptists that you know fall into this uh category um I guess Church of Christ would be in there. Uh, they, this is how they, they most mostly that how they look at the Bible. This is what it says, and even the omission of things, they would say that that's what it says too. An example, and I've I've talked about this before. Um, my wife's family was um, Church of Christ. Uh, her grandmother. Church of Christ her whole life. And in the Church of Christ, they do not sing with musical accompaniments. And my wife, she goes and marries a, a church musician. Okay. So in meeting her grandmother for one of the first times, that was what she was getting on me about was where do you get off playing music? you know, in, in church, where is that? And I said, well, you know, it's all through the Bible. I mean, you look at the old Testament and they were singing praises and, you know, the Psalms are written to the Psalmist, to the music director. And she said, well, that's old Testament. This is new Testament. Show me a new Testament. And I would show, well, here it says, you know, Jesus went out and, and sung a hymn, you know, uh, sung, sung a song. And she would say, where does it say that, that there were instruments there? Where say because if it didn't say it directly that somebody was singing with musical accompaniment, well, you don't do it. You don't do it. It can't be done because this is the way that you're supposed to do things. And a lot of times that's how people will do church. They will say, This is how you do church. 
because um, that's what the Bible is and it's the guideline for that. Where the Bible really doesn't have a, this is how you do church section. It's not set up like that. It's it's not a list of a, a rule book in, you know, in the way that you conduct a church service and the way you set up a church. You had things like, you know, the didache at, at the time there, which would say, this is how, you know, you do communion. This is how you do um, uh, the Lord's Supper. Um, this is how we behave. Um, Book of Common Prayer in the Anglican Church. I mean, you have you have things that were added into later because, and this is where you know a lot of tradition comes from and traditionalism, because of the way you know the the New Testament is written. When you look at um, a high liturgical service, for example, like a like a Roman Catholic or an Anglican or a Lutheran uh, Presbyterian, and as, obviously I'm going high to low. Um, some are very, very high. Um, what they are doing is it, they are mimicking a um, liturgical service of the Jewish people, okay? And, and especially in ancient Jewish culture, because that was the tradition. The Passover meal that Jesus celebrated, that was a liturgy. And that's how we know what was going on and what happened. And we can, you know, get a bigger picture of what's going on at that time because it's a liturgical service. It's something that's still done today and it's something that has been preserved. And we saw in um, our, our salvation study how, you know, some of those traditions like like Passover um, goes back all the way to the, um, the book of Exodus. And you can read what was in, in Exodus in the 20s and, and 30s chapters. Um, you get this explanation of what you are to do and, you know, what is being done and what's happening. And so, um, uh, we take, I kind of lost my thought there for a second and in, in where I was going with that. But anyways, um, back to this. Oh yeah. Uh, so with a, a literalism, if you throw out, ignore all tradition and a literalist would say, I pick up the Bible and that tells me how to do church when it actually doesn't. Now, a more extreme version of it, and this is the one where I don't understand how people who hold to that um, ipsissima verba, where every single word is inspired, why they don't go to this one. That's called letterism. And letterism is that interpretation that ignores context, historical and cultural setting, and even grammatical structure, taking each word, letter, and number as an isolated truth. So, they would look at that and they would say, Look at the shape of the letter, okay? This, obviously, this this shape and the way that this is, and if you count every, so many of these shapes, you get this particular number and it's saying this. And, uh, you know, look at how this word shapes together and, you know, what that sort of means. See how it sort of looks like a serpent or, you know... Um, Another way that they do, I guess it would be considered today, it'd be considered numberism, where we take the chapter and verses of the Bible and give them significant meaning, which they didn't have back then, but I'm sure, you know, if they did, because I don't think it was until like the 14th century or so that, you know, we started getting chapters and verse numbers in our, in our Bibles before then. 
You just had the books just written straight out. It, it wasn't uh, divided like that. But a lot of people take, for example, John chapter six, verse sixty-six, where um, you know this is this the story of you know after Jesus said you know eat my flesh and drink my blood, and he says it you know four times in four different ways, and you know, we went over that and you know and, and that whole meaning in um, in the salvation series. But it says in in verse sixty-six, then you know um, th- that it was a hard saying, and they all turned away and stopped following him, and people would say. See, 666, that is the mark of the beast. That's in Revelation. That means that people are going to turn away. See, because they turned away from Jesus, that that's what the mark of the beast is, that people turn away from God. And that's how they interpret it. And it's like, wait a minute, you're interpreting it through an arbitrary hermeneutic that doesn't exist. You're, you're, those numbers are just just made up. They just happen to be there. They're just happenstance. Um and and you know if you're if you're listening to that going well I thought that's what the mark of the beast was people turning away and it's like well if you're getting it using that method don't you're wrong maybe let's just I'm not even going to go into you know interpreting six 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 and the mark of the beast right now all I'm going to say is if that's the method that you're using to come to that conclusion it's a flawed method okay you might be using a flawed method and get a right interpretation but understand your methodology and that's you know the big thing that we're talking talking about here. So, uh, listen to these passages and and apply this this type of methodology. Okay, this type of of literalism and letterism to these passages here. If a person has a stubborn, rebellious son who pays no attention to his father and mother, and they discipline him to no avail, his father and mother must seize him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his city. Okay, what would you do there? Well. In the Mishra Sanhedrin, the in, uh, think of this as like the Jewish commentary, okay? And and well, it, it's, it's sort of like Jewish commentary, but also um, interpretive methods. So I guess it'd be sort of like our you know our our study Bibles, our commentary Bibles. It says that here's how you are to understand Deuteronomy twenty one eighteen through nineteen, the stubborn rebellious son passage. Okay, if either of them, the parents was maimed in the hand, or lame, or blind, or deaf, or dumb, then he cannot be condemned as a stubborn, rebellious son. For it is written, so the father and mother shall lay hold of him. So, they were not maimed in the hand. And bring him out. Okay? So, they were not lame. And they shall say, so they were not dumb, this is our son. So, they were not blind. He will not obey our voice, so they were not deaf. Okay, do you understand how they're interpreting this? That they're saying that, okay, if you do have a stubborn and rebellious son, and you're bringing him to the city gates, and you don't, that's what they would ask. Well, do you have hands? Are you lame in any way? Are you deaf? Do you have, I mean, that's a overly literal understanding of this passage. Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you experts in the law and you Pharisees, hypocrites. You give a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, yet you neglect what is more important in the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have done these things without neglecting the others. So, the allegorical interpretation and the Pesher interpretation, okay, if you were to Put in and um in these four. Well, we're just gonna move over to them. My eyes just kind of jumped down the next one, but um, this is what 
what Jesus is pointing out was what the Pharisees and Sadducees were doing, okay? Um, They would tithe to the point where they were measuring out their spices in their house, maybe as they were using them. And they would be giving a tenth of it, putting a tenth of it aside to give to the Lord, okay? But the big ticket items, they they weren't. And he's like, what are you doing? I mean, this is the whole, you know, you'll, you'll strain out a gnat, but you'll swallow a camel. Like what, how you don't see that, you know, there are things that are important. Okay. And there are other things that are more important than just this. Um, the whole concept of tithing, maybe we'll get into at some point later, but it's very free. Okay. Um, you know, some people have said, Hey, look, 10% is a good benchmark, but you're not obligated to it. You're to freely give, you can give more than 10%. If you want, you can give less time, talent, and treasure. That's what it is. You know, if you can't, if you can't give, you know, treasure, okay, because you don't have the money to, and you can't afford it, but you have a lot of time, give your time. If you can give your talents, give your talents, you know, I mean, what, what can you do? Give what you can, but give joyfully and give freely. Okay. So that's how, you know, we would interpret that. But what they would look at is say, you have to give a tithe. And back then it was a a triple tithe. Okay. I mean, you had it in like, you know, three different levels and stuff. And then, um, you know, you had the year uh, Jubilee, you had like all the, I mean, there's a lot of stuff. We ever do a thing on tithing, uh, that, that goes into it now. Pesher, this is the hermeneutic that was used in the Qumran sect where we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, okay? This is a form of interpretation among the Dead Sea community in which the text had immediate eschatological significance that could only be understood through divine revelation. Eschatology is the study of the end times, okay? And what this would be is somebody that reads the Bible and interprets it that the Bible was written to them for this time and it's being fulfilled at this time, okay? I've always called it new newspaper eschatology, where you have the Bible and you have a newspaper and you're reading both of them and you're using the newspaper to interpret the Bible. You're saying, look at what's happening. This is a sign of the times. Uh, Jack Van Impey is, uh, does a very popular TV show um, and probably has a podcast and everything else these days, but he uses a Pesher hermeneutic. He, and he has for years, I mean, as far as long as I've known, he shows in the book of Revelation, he'd be like, see, the Russians are mobilizing their tanks and this is showing in the book of Revelation where it says that, I mean, and he would just quote, I mean, that's, that's what he's doing. He's using this Pesher hermeneutic. A more comical one that I've heard is people now, because Donald Trump is the president, um, then this is 2017, February 2017, uh, that I'm recording this, Donald Trump being president, um, people are, are saying, well, this is what happened. The angel was dictating to John, the apostle, who's writing the book of Revelation, and he says, uh, write, th- write these things down. When you hear the sound of the Trump pence, and Mike Pence was his running mate, so Trump Pence, uh, you will know that the time is is soon, and he's writing down, says, okay, when I hear the trumpets, 
No, no, no. Trumpets. Yeah, yeah. Trumpets. Ah, you'll figure it out later. Don't worry about it. Keep writing. You know, and that becomes the comical thing. But that's what people would do. They say, "Huh? Maybe trumpets actually means trumpets." And I've, I, I've, I've seen, especially in some of what I would consider the less educated denominations, a lot of the Anabaptist ones um, that are very. Um, less educated in interpretation, those sort of things, would do stuff like that. They would take a word and it would sound similar to a word, you know, but it's the English equivalent of the Greek and they that has a similar sound to another one. And so they would say, this is what it means because it's it's pointing to, and you know, I, I nothing, no examples are coming to my mind right now, but I know I've, I've heard it, I've sat under that and I just thought that it was just so comical that, you know, that's that, that's what's being done. Now, an allegorical interpretation, um, remember this is the Hellenistic one, it's the interpretation of scripture practiced primarily among Hellenistic Jews, in which the primary goal of interpretation is to find the underlying hidden meaning of the text found in characters, places, events, numbers, and other details that would not otherwise be found. All right, so... um, Again, the meaning of you know the six 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 from the chapter uh, from the Gospel of John that's being you know, pushed towards Revelation. Uh, Philo of Alexandria's view of interpretation was that um, if if you take the illustration of the body and the soul, that the body was the literal plain meaning and the soul was the allegorical hidden meaning. Okay, so an example of this would be. Um, like saying that uh, at the time of of drought, um, in you know, whenever Samuel went to the widow and she um, had uh, just enough oil and and flour to bake some bread for her and her son, and that was and they were starving and that's all they had left, and they were going to just you know eat that and die is what she says because the prophet comes to her says he then and he says well make me one first and she's like thinking well we don't have enough for that but he's like just make me one first and then make yourself one and she does and there's enough oil and flour left over for her to make her and her son some also and that oil and that flour never runs out and she's able to continually make bread and and it feeds them okay so if we took this particular hermeneutic okay Let's say that this allegorical hermeneutic, you have to strip the meaning out of what it really, really means. So, um, the oil is the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit being God gives you abundance. And so Elijah comes and he gives the Holy Spirit to this woman. And that's why she has all of this oil, the power of the Holy Spirit is working through her cooking. So the Holy Spirit that day descended upon uh, this woman and her son because she listened to the man of God. That would be an allegorical you know, interpretation. And you might be thinking, hey, you know what? That kind of sounds like some sermons that I hear in church. Yeah, sometimes uh, pastors do get into those, you know, allegories, um, to try and explain, you know, but the, you know what's what the what the Bible says. But um, there's a difference between using an illustration to help you get the understanding of the meaning and saying this is literally what it's saying. Okay, that's a different you know thing because I mean a lot of times a sermon will start out with an illustration that has something to do with the passage. They're not saying that the passage is directly 
you know, equating to this illustration that the interpretation is this illustration. That's the difference. Okay. So be on the lookout for um, the allegorical approach because it, it can't happen. So it's, it's limited regard for the original context. Um, overly literal interpretation, seeing significance in every single detail, uh, including uh, letters and numbers. Uh, the biblical text was only a vehicle for the hidden true meaning that must be discovered, and immediate eschatological fulfillment from the Qumran area, and the emphasis on allegory from the Hellenistic area. Okay, and this probably went on from. You know, let's say, uh, I don't know, 200 BC to around 400 AD within the ancient Jewish community. Now, the New Testament being written between, you know, 33 and like 90 AD, or from my point of view, between, um, you know, 40 and um, 68. Um, you know, they were, they would, they were Jewish, a lot of them, and would fall into this category. They would use this. You know, type of stuff, and you know, we've seen this in in other areas. I don't know if I talked about what exactly the hermeneutic was, but we would you know, see that where the um, the authors of the gospels would say, "See, this is to fulfill what was written here." When it was like, "Well, no, that that wasn't." And I think we looked at that with um, uh, Matthew saying, "You know, uh, born of a virgin," so that you know Isaiah could the prophet Isaiah what he you know, prophesied would be fulfilled. That sort of thing. And well, they were using um, this type of hermeneutic. Jesus himself used a Pesher hermeneutic in speaking about himself, but the only difference was uh, the Bible was actually talking about him. So he actually could use that Pesher hermeneutic. And since he spoke and talked that way, this is another reason why people would think that perhaps he and his family were from, that they were Essenes, that they were from the Qumran sect. Um, and because that they would, you know, attribute this to themselves, which is what those people were doing. And another reason why, you know, they would look at Mary and kind of look down on her because the Essenes were known for, um, you know, extolling, extolling, whatever that word is, uh, virginity. They held virginity in a very high regard, even within marriage. So to have somebody from the Essene community come to you with their children and especially with their children and it's sort of rumored or we all knew who the father is type thing, but that really put a black smudge on the family. And so them saying, isn't this Jesus is, you know, the son of Mary. And when they say son of Mary, that was a pejorative. That was like, yeah, the son of an Essene woman, you know, not, isn't this the son of Joseph? Isn't this from the male, from the patriarch, from the family name? And you know, no son of Mary. I mean, you know, kind of saying, you know, he was conceived out of wedlock. He was, you know, all the whispers that you would get. So because he used this particular harmony, when speaking of himself, that's why people would associate him with that community. So, um, Christ in the New Testament, uh, writers saw uh, Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament writing, and they often employed a literal hermeneutic in which the scriptures were interpreted in a straightforward historical manner, with Christ being the literal fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. They also employed Pesher and typology, believing that Christ's advent brought the fulfillment of God's word. And typology is um, that you would see types of Christ. For example, um, Melchizedek in um, 
the book of Genesis, and I think he's mentioned one time in Psalms and one time in Hebrews. Um, Melchizedek uh, was high priest and king over uh, Salem, which later becomes Jerusalem, who Abram paid um, tithes to and gave you know offerings to, and he sacrificed uh, for him, and the sacrifice was of bread and wine. Um, you know, at that time of, of bloody sacrifice. So people would say, see, he is Melchizedek is a type of Christ, a Christ like. Like figure, and you know they would find that in there, and so if you are somebody that doesn't study hermeneutics but you study the Bible, you would see them using this particular type of interpretation and say, "Oh, I guess that's the way we should interpret." But you have to understand contextually what they're doing, and I mean, I have a very high Christology, and I think that you should read the Bible. The only proper way to interpret the Old Testament. Is through is by a Christian is through a Christology through a New Testament understanding, seeing Christ as the fulfillment. Um, if you want to get a good handle on how to do that, read the book of Hebrews. Hebrews goes through and uses all that typology and shows how Jesus is our high priest and king, how he is our sacrifice, how he fulfills everything that was going on in the Old Testament sacrificial system, the whole um, you know priesthood, like everything. I mean, it's it's a great book in the Bible to study if you want to know how should we interpret the Old Testament. The book of Hebrews is the one you look at to do that. Now, approximately 10% of the New Testament is quotations, paraphrases, and, and or allusions to the Old Testament. But all but nine Old Testament books are referred to in the New Testament. Uh, typological, again, is looking at events in history as foreshadowing or a type of things to come. Um, so think about it, uh, to summarize again, allegory is finding the hidden meaning and character, places, events, numbers, and other details that would not otherwise be found. And typology is finding a foreshadowing of a present and future events in historical events and people of the past. So Christ used literal typological midrashic and pesher hermeneutics considering himself the fulfillment of the Old Testament law and the prophets and you can see those in uh, all through the New Testament. Just keep these in mind. I don't have time to kind of go through all of them. Um, but the allegorical interpretation was not employed by any of the New Testament writers, since this was primarily a, a Greek thing. Although the New Testament writers have used the Old Testament in ways to go beyond the literal reading through pressure through pressure and typology, caution should be used by contemporary readers when using these same hermeneutics for ancient or contemporary fulfillment. And there is a debate on whether or not they were enabled to do it because of the Holy Spirit, and they were writing um uh they you know they were writing uh scripture and that they were being led and maybe next week i will start off by kind of going through because maybe i think it would be a good idea to kind of go through some of these and see how christ used them and how the uh old the new testament writers writ them um how they interpreted jeremiah how they interpreted hosea um and just kind of talk about that a little bit more before we go on to um, the uh, patriotic um, uh, early church from between like 100 to 500 AD and seeing how how did they interpret scripture because we're kind of getting more into familiar territory. So if you want to before next week, you know, look up Jeremiah 31:15, read that. Um, compare it with Matthew 2, uh, 17 and 18, read Hosea 11, 1, and compare that to uh, Matthew 2, 15. 
and um, you know, and see if you can kind of see what they're doing. And maybe ask yourself: Were they using a allegory? Were they using uh, typology? Were they using midrash? Were they using uh, pesher? Uh, what exactly were they using? Were they using a, a literalism? Were they using a legalism? Were they using a letterism? And I know this is a lot of stuff to kind of throw at you all at once, and it's it's kind of easier to look at. But um, hermeneutics is is a big topic to understand. How do people understand? the Bible as a whole. And we'll we'll hit on more of that stuff uh, next week. But thank you very much for listening to The Theology Pit. Thank you for um, subscribing. Please um, share these uh, podcasts. Let people know about them. Uh, like us on Facebook. You can share through Facebook. I do put these on there. Um, if you want to rate us on iTunes, that would be fantastic. Um, you can leave a, a note on there telling people about us on iTunes. Like, you know, what, what you like about it. And, you know, if you think that these are, are good studies and you know you can also get a hold of me uh, samson at samsonstick.com you can send me a message there telling me what you like or you don't like you can visit me at samsonstick.com and other things that I have uh, going on I do have some uh, another edgier podcast that I'm doing that you know some people like some people don't like and it is much different than this but I think it's definitely time now to close down the pit mm-hmm.